Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. So, Robert in the chat, mm. calling us out already. Loving the fact the most glitch-prone live streamers are actually TV production people in real life. <laughs> now, here's, here's the thing about that is... When we are when we are doing productions in real life, yeah. we we have much better equipment and oh. resources. And what what are we doing here? I'm just adjusting. Just, we also you're adjusting what? Oh, exactly. right. We uh, we do uh, we also surround ourselves by people who know more than we do on a regular basis. That's true. That's uh, that's, that's exactly right. It's called it's called but, being a really really good director. Is you surround yourself by cast and crew who are better at their jobs than you are, and so therefore you can trust them to do their jobs. Okay, you have to <laughs> unlock the pan the knob, which means you have to get up out of the chair and and <laughs> see. This is the kind of thing, right? Yes, that one. And go the other. There you go. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Keep going. Just a little bit. Well, I don't want to cut your head off. No, you're, no, that's the pan. This Wait. this way. That's there. You go. Yeah, but he's got a, he's got a red bump over his head. But that's the tilt. That's the handle on the back. Yeah, I know that. That's what I was trying to do. Okay, but we were also not centered in the shot. Well, so right. I had you sit. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the H2O Podcast. My name is Jason Hunt. I am Timothy Harvey. If you are listening to this, um, then you are not enjoying the fun visual readjustments. If you are watching this and enjoying the fun visual readjustments, well, you know. Oh, okay. It, this is this is going to bug her no end, so... Okay, yeah, better fix it. I make an It's, it's the microphones? The microphones that are above our heads? Yes. Oh, no. You're like a character in a video game. No thing over your head. Click on you and you're going to give us some type of Give you a quest. little dance or something? Drop, a, drop some uh, uh, you know, important information for the quest? You know? Yes. You must go up to the castle. There's a terrible monster. Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like that every time I walk up the stairs. You must go up to the castle. There's a terrible monster. And and the cat, the, the, cat, the cat is sitting uh-huh. on the stairs. Uh huh. And sometimes off to the side. I was like, "What are you? Are are you are you a quest cat today? What are you doing?" Because she, she has this very haughty look mm, about her sure, sometimes, sure, sure. as cats do. So. Oh yes, I'm aware. So anyway, so anyway, yes. Today, tonight it is um, okay. Now I guess I tilted down enough that gone too far. My head is cut off, but that's okay because I can just everything's broken. (laughs) And the dogs in my and the dogs in your life. And the dog, 
This is dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. This is how movie screenings go, right? I, this is right. In, yeah. in our in our business. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we're actually going to show a movie tonight. Um, and uh, for the folks who are listening to the podcast, I guess you'll get to hear it. Um, it actually does hold up relatively well audio only, by the way. Because uh, I've listened to it quite a few times uh, over the course of, of editing it. But uh, there are some visual things you won't get to see. So my apologies there. Uh, we'll go ahead and... I have a version of this that lives on Vimeo, but it was the sort of the preview cut that we did yeah. before the Fringe... Because we've screened this in a few places. It's not something we've screened terribly widely. We have... Um, well, there's still some there's still some work to be done. There's on some it. effect stuff that we never were, were ultimately we're never happy with. Um, although we we enjoyed doing them, hmm. I think there was some real we, we we accomplished some really cool things with the with the effects because they were practical. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, um, it didn't quite go as far as uh, we quite would have liked. But that's not the movie we're going to talk about first. No, it's not. We'll circle back around to that. Right. See, yeah. this is this is the tease. We're, this is we're building this is anticipation. The, the, yes, right, the yeah. masterful way of that we have to manipulate the audience. Sure, right. To yes. stick around afterwards. <laughs> we're really and good at and Mazer has to answer your question. This is not. This is a minpin. This is uh, Penny the junior office dog. This is uh, not not a toy fox terrier. So it's a very pointy dog. Very pointy dog. Very bony dog. Who likes to bark? At everything. So, anyway. Anyway. Okay. So, Me when I arrive. <laughs> so, how about... Oh, uh, Robert in the chat says, I'm celebrating the arrival by via Amazon of my new set of Star Wars socks. RTD2, Stormtroopers, Clone Troopers, Kylo Ren, two pairs of Darth Vader's, good times, and he's also drinking schnapps. Well, there we go. Schnapps and socks. That's the name of my new band. Schnapps and socks. All right. So, the color out of space. Yeah. So, um, first of all, the color out of space is based on the short story by H.P. Lovecraft. And is directed by Richard Stanley of Hardware and the Island of Dr. Moreau, Infamy. Hardware was a terrible I like I Hardware. I didn't finish it. I actually like Hardware a lot. One of my paintings is actually inspired by Hardware. Mm. Because I saw hardware in college. It was new when I was in college. So this is, what, 80... Yeah. No, probably... 89? Somewhere between 89 and yeah. 91. Um, I don't remember the year exactly. But... Um, and actually had a really impressive cast for the time. Uh, Wasn't Guy Pierce in that? Guy Pierce was not in that. Um, but uh, Iggy Pop was the voice of the radio... Um, anyway, it's a, it's a science fiction film. I definitely I encourage you to check it out. Um... It's a post-apocalyptic evil robot movie. And this is back before everything was a post-apocalyptic Right, right, right. Thing. And, and yeah. especially when you consider that he did it on a relatively small budget. It's a pretty uh, impressive uh, debut. And whether you, you know, you don't have to like it. Jason doesn't like it. I enjoyed <laughs> it quite a bit. Um, now, of course, Infamy came later with The Island of Dr. Moreau, oh, yeah. which was his dream project. Stanley had a, just like, this was the thing he was going to do. He was super excited. It was like a big thing. Um, and he managed to have a very troubled production uh, with um, Marlon Brando playing Dr. Moreau and 
Um, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer playing a diva. Um, <laughs> actually, well, not playing a diva, being a diva. And and to be to be uh, maybe not fair to Kilmer, but to put it into perspective, um, he was going through a divorce. Oh yeah, there at was the time. And so that kind of became... The whole thing was a mess. Yeah, I mean, it was just a mess. And the, and the finished product is is arguably one of the... Well, it's the worst adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau, if nothing else. But it's also just... I mean, it's a fascinating film to watch. Now, mm -hmm. the making of it is even more fascinating fascinating story. Because Stanley, of course, was fired from as from directing from the film. From his own movie. From his own movie. Yeah. Um, and then refused to actually leave the set... Uh, they were not aware of this, but he basically snuck off, lived in the jungle around the shooting uh, site, and and disguised himself as one of the beastmen in the, in the film. The and so he'd be on the set, and it was a fa it's a fascinating, just crazy thing. Built up quite the reputation as being a little bit of a character, and then more or less did not do anything. It didn't have, uh, uh, you know, wasn't making feature films. Uh, well, at that point, his his reputation was pretty much oh, ruined. Really? I mean, the whole thing. But the, nobody came out of the island of Doctor Moreau looking good. No, except Rob Morrow, who quit early on. And, and yeah. I mean, he 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 arguably um, uh, I don't know. Like, you can't blame him for quitting. Uh, but yeah, of everybody involved, Rob Morrow by going, I have nothing to do with this, uh, is is the one who came out the least damaged. That said. Uh, when news came that Stanley was making another feature film and he was going back, he was doing The Color Out of Space, there was this kind of like... It was a collective head scratch that was like, yeah. huh? Because, I mean, there's there's a few things to bear in mind. Anytime you're adapting H.P. Lovecraft short stories into feature films is that they're short stories adapted into feature films. And sometimes this has not worked particularly well a lot of the time. Right. And the most successful adaptations have actually, well, strictly speaking, the most successful adaptations have been the Reanimator series. Which are not necessarily the most faithful adaptations. But they're all, well, but they're, they're faithful to the broad strokes concept of the stories. Now, bearing in mind, for those of you who are not familiar, um... The reanimator stories were were ones that Lovecraft was not actually quite. He was not happy with. He was not proud of these particular ones. He wrote them for money. Yeah. He was quite upfront about the fact that these are things I did to eat, and but they were very popular, and um, you know sometimes sometimes the thing you that your most successful thing is not the thing you wish was, but uh, anyway, so. There have been certainly a lot of attempts to do Lovecraft films in the past. Dagon was an interesting take um, that was, uh, uh, was kind of um, kind of shadows. Of, well, it wasn't really shadows over Innsmouth, um, but it's there's. And not too long ago, Guillermo del Toro was going to do uh, the Mountains of Madness. Uh, the Mountains of Madness, which would have been, I think, honestly. A, of all the of all the living directors who I would love to see just dive into Lovecraft, mm. he's probably the one. I remember 
we were on a we were on a road trip. We were on a family road trip, and I had gotten a hold of one of the collections of short stories. And mm. I think it was I think it was Necronomicon and other stories. Right, this yeah. is the one with the the skull statues yeah, on the yeah, on the sure. cover. And I remember the the one story in there that really stuck with me and made the impression and and okay I I'm totally on board with this guy this 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 writer was the rats in the walls oh yeah mm-hmm. and like you say short stories are hard to adapt into features mm. and the idea of doing the rats in the walls as a film of any sort is kind of it's kind of a fun little mental exercise for me because sure. how do you do it yeah and that's with any Lovecraft story, that's the question. How do you do it? And and we had to deal with that ourselves, oh, too. Yeah. Because I mean, all of these stories, most of these stories, are told in first-person narrative. Mm-hmm. There aren't any other characters that he described. The narrator, whoever it is, will describe the other characters that are in this story, the people that are populating this story. Right. But there's no dialogue. There, there's a description of conversations, mm-hmm. but there's no real dialogue set in these stories. So you have to extrapolate all of this stuff. Right. And it's meant for, like, for, for At the Mountains of Madness, there, because it's a novella, it's actually, there's a lot more text to adapt. Oh, yeah. And even, even there, there's, there's a lot of things you can pull uh, because of the descriptions of the conversation and what they're doing, there's a there's a, a lot of places in the, that story where you could actually have very little dialogue on screen and just have you know these people marching across this desolate city. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of things you can do visually uh, to distract from the fact that there isn't a whole lot of dialogue in the story. But a lot of his short stories um, also end with things that are not easily built out of a special effects department because they have a tendency to be uh, unnameable Unnameable, or undescribable. That's actually the things that my my mind could not process what it was seeing. And one of the most, I think, one of the most faithful adaptations of what that is, what that might look like, Hmm. um, was, of course, Carpenter's... There are moments in John Carpenter's uh, In the Mouth of Madness where you get glimpses. No. But never more than a glimpse, and so he gets to imply a lot. Now, um, there have been quite a few films that have been Lovecraftian, have been inspired by Lovecraft. You can argue that Alien has a lot of very Lovecraftian. Oh, very much so. Um, uh, the 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 film Underwater, which uh, is not doing particularly well at the box office, but also probably could have, should have come out two years ago and it was done. Um, and I maintain is better. It's a better um, alien movie than the last two alien movies have been. Uh, <laughs> that's not a stretch. It's not a stretch, and it's unfortunate. But there's and and for those of you who who've heard that it pr- feels pretty derivative, we've you've seen this kind of movie before. Yeah. Uh, although oddly enough, somebody uh, somebody wrote an article saying that the underwater isn't the best underwater monster movie. Um, I think it wasn't. It was, gosh, it wasn't Deep Star Six. It was the other one. Sphere. No, no. Uh, Deep Star. So, so periodically, films will come out in groups, right? Sure. And the same about the same time that um, <laughs> we were getting 
uh, oh, for heaven's sakes, the Cameron Underwater movie. The Abyss. The Abyss, thank you. We got uh, uh, Deep Star Six, and the other one, God, the other one starred Peter Weller. Oh. <sighs> now I'm drawing a blank yeah. here. Deep Star, Can... Deep Star Six was the lesser of the three. And while while The Abyss um, was sort of a big, in many ways it was a big idea movie. I mean, mm-hmm. the concept of, you know, these aliens and, and humanity's fate. Um, Deep Star Six was basically your pure uh, monster movie. And then, oh, I'm sorry. I left my phone. This is so strange. I, I'm trying, I normally I would be pulling my face. And, and yeah. My reference, my reference tool is not with me. All right, let me, I'll, <clears throat> I'll look that up while you vamp. So. Right, so, um, but... So uh, yeah, underwater is essentially it has a lot in common with Alien uh, as an underwater picture. But there's something that happens at the end of the film, and I won't spoil it because you certainly want to see if you're interested in seeing it. You shouldn't have it be spoiled. But it had led people to actually ask the director if this connected with the Lovecraft, you know, the, with the Cthulhu mythos. And the director said, "Well, it was meant to, yeah." And it was his he. There's nothing in the rest of the movie. There was nothing in the ad campaign to indicate that this was uh, going to be a Lovecraftian anything. It uh, wasn't Mighty Aphrodite. It was not Mighty Aphrodite. Uh, okay. It's a, there was very very little of Mighty Aphrodite involved underwater sea monsters. Not the substitute wife. Uh, no. no. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the... Um, Leviathan. Leviathan, thank you. Leviathan. I actually enjoyed Leviathan quite a bit. I thought it was qu- quite clever. Uh, overall, it's a, it's a fun it's it's, it's a fun B movie. I mean, it's a, sure. it's a it's a B monster movie, and it's actually the biggest problem with it is there's a special effects failure at the end. It's a green screen moment. You sit there and go, oh, that's a green screen moment. <laughs> but overall, it's got a good sense of tension. I mean, it's much more of a monster movie than say the Abyss is. The, the Abyss is pretty much you know just it's a first contact science fiction movie, really. Sure. Um, the uh, Leviathan is very much a monster movie, and Deep Star Six is a very is. I'm not going to go Asylum mockbuster level, but it was definitely a lower budget derivative idea type. Yeah, except they all were. You know, they came out about the same time. It's kind of like watching. Uh, it's like when those two Christopher Columbus movies came out with him and what a well of each other. Yeah, but it's also it's, it's more. It was more like the Thirteenth Floor, um, The Matrix, and Dark City. Oh yeah. They all came out within a year of each other. I'm sorry, the Truman Show actually as well. It's all these. You were for the reality. The reality you think is real is not. Mm-hmm. Um, you're being lied to. Your you know the the your world is an illusion. No. Um, and of the four of them, um, you know they they all take very very different tones. Um, and of the four of them, well, the Thirteenth Floor is entertaining. I thought that was it was it was interesting. It was it interesting. Was, it's not bad. Not bad. Um, Dark City is is, <clears throat> I think, one of the um, the best science fiction films of the last thirty years, yeah. in my opinion. Um, the Matrix, somewhat popular. People seem to enjoy the film. And we're getting a fourth we're one. Getting a fourth one. And the Truman Show was, uh, I think, one of those moments where you actually you know, reminded that Jim Carrey was an actor as opposed to just a comedian. Right. Um, so. Robert, all, Robert in the chat makes a, makes a good point. Philip K. Dick stories also mm, difficult to adapt. Real tough. I think you with with Dick you almost have to go with broad. You have to go more concept than mm, detail. Just the idea. The idea so that he's talking about. Thing, um, yeah. And I think that, think that you can get the man in the high castle if you and and see, you know more than one season of man in the high castle if you just take the broad idea of what the story's about oh. same thing with blade runner i mean it's you know clearly if you've ever read 
the novel, you know, it's not. It's, they're, yeah, they're, it's they're, not they have very little. They have a, there's some names involved. There's some couple of concepts well, involved. Well, the, the ideas are there. The, yeah, the but seed, the seeds of the, the movie seeds. are there. But and I think know. that it's 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 curious that we we get into this thing sometime where we talk about adapting one thing to another, and we talked a little bit about this last week, mm. where you run into <clears throat> you know in name only adaptations. And when they don't work, everyone you know justifiably gets upset. When they do work, like say Blade Runner, uh, you know, Philip K. Dick loved everybody it. Everybody wants to make a makes another Blade Runner. He loved the movie, but it's yeah. radically different than the source material. So sometimes you 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 kind of have to recognize that some things just aren't filmable in yeah. the normal sense, or filmable in a you know, as close to a one-to-one as you can get. And Lovecraft often falls into that category. You know, we were we were pleased to learn that Julie Strain had not, in fact, passed away. Uh, but when she starred in the... Un- when she played the monster in The Unnameable, um, which is based on a short story that actually is filmable <laughs> um, and should be uh, filmed, actually, uh, as, a, as a short... Um, because it has some fun inside baseball writer things going on in there. Yeah. But I mean, you can you you look at the monster in the film, which has very little to do with the with the short story at all, and you go, "No, I can name that." No, it's that's, that's a nameable thing. Farmer says, "Do androids dream of electric sheep?" Perhaps his favorite sci-fi novel. Mm. Yeah, Blade Runner is fantastic, but very different, and that yeah. is true. That is, yeah. That's very true because Blade Runner bears a passing resemblance. Mm-hmm to the source material at but then you get into something like uh 2001 mm-hmm. which is based on a short story called the sentinel right which is not 2001 i mean clark essentially rewrote that story right and the novel was actually bigger and the you know the 2001 grand but the novel was actually being written at the same time as the script was being written. Right. And so you get the divergence between what the film finished as and what the novel finished as, even though they're being created at the same time. And of course, you get in, then you get into the weird sequel thing, mm. where his, his premise was basically, every sequel is an alternate reality. <laughs> <laughs> I can change whatever I want, I'm the writer. <laughs> and, it, and, and it worked. I mean, he made, he made it work. But the yeah. t- uh, 2010, the movie is very curious because it's a sequel to the movie based on the sequel to the book the book but 2010 actually follows the movie's events not the book's events in the the book form of course so i mean it's like okay wait a minute <laughs> but it works out it works out and and 2010 is actually one of my favorite uh Adaptations of it's a, it's a it's well it's a decent sequel too. It's a I mean, it tells it's, a solid story, but it's a very it's a sequel in very different in tone. I mean yeah. it's a it's a very much a grounded the the psychedelic kind of uh, uh, trippiness of, of two thousand and ten. But it is also telling a different kind of it's telling a story on a different scale. It's much more of a human scale. Mm-hmm. The humans looking at the the bigger universe. There is we had a story on Good Morning Multiverse this weekend. There is an exhibition. That just opened up this past October in New York. Mm. Um, there's a uh, there's a museum in Queens 
that has uh, a 2001 exhibit. Oh, cool. And it's got concept art, it's got costumes, it's got props, it's got behind the scenes footage, it's got test films that they shot, and nice. all of these different things. So all of those things uh, in New York until October of 2020, October 3rd, I think is the last day of 2020. So you've got all this time to go up to Queens and see see this stuff. But the the task of adapting a story and we see this with Game of Thrones we see it with um, well any any comic book movie that's adapting sure, source right. material to something else we see it with the Hunger Games you see it with Twilight you know the comparisons between oh yeah Harry the Potter books and the and the movies and oh it's not what it's that's not that's not what he's supposed to look like and that's not right, what she right, did right. and that didn't happen that way in the book and you know sure having done this yeah we can say without very much uh, confusion that it's a tough thing to do it is especially if you've got a really long book that has a lot of stuff in it, like say yeah. The Hunt for Red October. The movie is a fairly faithful adaptation of the book, but there's a lot of the book that's not in the movie. Oh yeah, well, all actually, of the side plots, all the of the Jack Ryan adaptations were that yeah. way. Yeah, you take the main through line, and here's your story, and that's that's all the, that's all you got time to do. And by the way, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, the if you've ever happened to have seen uh, Les Misérables, the musical or the mm. movie or anything like that, um, it is about a third of the Victor Hugo novel. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> the book is massive, and the book, but, but there's also that two thirds is politics mm. and history, and if you've ever sat there, and that got, doesn't play on stage. It does really not well. play on stage well, or no. in the films well. I mean, even though it's it's, you know, it's one of the problems that's running with adaptations of, of books like Dune, is that there's so much, you know, Herbert built. He worldcrafted on a scale in the in especially in the first book. Yeah, uh, that putting that on screen is tough, and and they've they've tried and they're trying again, and and you know it it makes well, a real the early challenge. word the early word on on footage from people that have seen it said this is going to blow everybody away. Well, I hope so. so. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of the series that I would love to see a really uh, an adaptation that gets people to read the book, and maybe maybe get the Dune Encyclopedia back in print. Yeah, or work on a new one. I mean, they'll well, they'll the probably have to update. The pro well, see, the problem is that's that's a that's another little. Um, so when Herbert uh, when Herbert died, and and his son started started writing the new books, um, because they didn't want to use the chronology that was set up in the Dune Encyclopedia, so they got the co-writer of the Dune Encyclopedia. To basically say this is not canon, and so there's actually a, there's there's a little fight in the Dune fandom. There's an ongoing thing where it's like, no, Dune Encyclopedia is canon. No, Dune Encyclopedia is not canon. If you are a fan of the prequels and sequels, mm -hmm. um, then the Dune Encyclopedia is not canon. If you think that the prequels and sequels are things that you go, 
I don't know what you're talking about. There are no prequels and sequels. Right. Kind of like Star Wars. Kind of. Um, then the Dune Encyclopedia is absolutely canon. It's out of print. It's long run out of print. I read it when it was my, my library back when I was a teenager. And quite frankly, I think it's great. Um, but I'm also not a fan. Having read the prequels and the sequels, okay, I've read them, and they're not my particular cup of tea. Let's just say. Your mileage may vary. Also. Your mileage it's, may it's, vary. It's difficult. It's a challenge because when you have a series of books by one writer mm -hmm. and that writer passes and now somebody else is writing. Right. The voice changes. What and and sometimes it's subtle. And oh, sometimes yeah. it's There's not no obvious. You know, it's not right there in your face obvious somebody else is writing these books. But there's a shift. There's a there's a change in something in the presentation. Right. And it, it, it's it's you, you subconsciously you pick up on it. Yeah. Um, uh, Dragon Riders of Perns the same way, mm -hmm. where you have Anne McCaffrey writing for so long, and then she was writing with her son Todd, mm -hmm. and then she passed away. Now Todd's doing it, um, and his sister has written one, mm -hmm. and it's it's not quite the same. Sure. You well, know, there's there's stuff in these stories. That you look at it and you go, it doesn't it doesn't feel quite right. Right. Well, and I think Lovecraft has the advantage that first of all, uh, he was writing stories of a kind, and he was not the only one in his particular literary circle who was writing stories of a kind. Mm -hmm. uh, he corresponded with a lot of writers um, and would share story ideas and things like that, and and no issue in other people playing in his particular mythos. Because Lovecraft wasn't thinking of it as we think of it now. Mm -hmm. He was not particularly concerned with the continuity of his particular set of stories. He was not particularly concerned with people looking at it as, here's Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Right. He, this was not a thing that he was thinking of. Well, and at the time, it wasn't. Right. Because all the whole concept of aliens and ancient ones and all this other stuff, that didn't come until later. Well, because... Uh, it, it was organic. It, it, yeah, it kind of I mean, happened. It, well, but then, you, then you have someone coming along like August Derleth, who sort of... And again, August Derleth is someone who, we, if you're a fan of Lovecraft, you owe a debt to, because Derleth basically kept Lovecraft in print. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot going, you could say, that Derleth did uh, in, in keeping Lovecraft, or exposing Lovecraft to the wider audience. Right. On the other hand, uh, Durlith also kind of overlaid a good versus evil, light versus darkness overlay over the mythos that did not exist among Lovecraft and some of his other contemporary writers who were playing the same kind of thing. Um, Lovecraft's universe was full of entities that did not care about humanity. They weren't evil. They weren't good. We were specks of dust and barely noticeable. And if should they should they rip open the, the the walls of the universe and destroy us all? It wasn't personal; we were just sort of in the way. In the way, yes. uh, and and not even particularly like in the way where it's like I have to move them out of the way. It's more like what was that? Did I? Is there something on my shoe? You know. <laughs> but so good and 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 bad there. But one of the things that a lot of people who have carried on the Lovecraft, you know, telling stories in in the Cthulhu mythos, uh, in the Lovecraftian. Uh, world 
very few of them have tried to do it in the voice that Lovecraft used. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's not something... It was it was an archaic form of writing when Lovecraft was doing it. He was very much an Anglophile, writing in a, in a, in a, in a style that was not particularly popular at the time because it was an older style. Um, very few authors who picked up and carried on beyond, you know, playing with those themes, wrote in the same kind of voice that Lovecraft did. And, um, you know, people like... Uh, Oh, goodness. Uh, Brian Lumley or Stephen King, who have carried this stuff. They don't, they're not writing it in, in the same kind of, of language that, that Lovecraft was using. Robert Block. Block. Yeah, yeah, definitely Block. Um, Block was a contemporary, you know, they, were, they corresponded. The, you know, and a lot of authors have taken Lovecraft and brought him into the modern, or the Lovecraft mythos into the modern day. A lot of the adaptations are not period pieces, um, which is why we... When we did one, we wanted it to be one, right? Um, and there's, there's, you know, there are quite a few comic adaptations of Lovecraftian uh, stories uh, that have been. Um, some interesting things have happened. There's the, the Fall of Cthulhu, uh, comic series that was going on for a few years, several years back. Uh, Alan Moore has written some quite a few Lovecraft. Yeah. Riffs in comics. Some of them are very, very disturbing because it's a, you know Alan there's Moore. There's a new, there's a new game, and actually there's a little bit of a controversy in in social media right now. There's a new game called Legacy of Cthulhu that just came out. Oh yeah, what's that? And the people are basically for those for those who have not been paying attention over the last couple of years, it is now no longer politically correct to admire H.P. Lovecraft because he was racist. That's the that's the prevailing narrative now, and it's it, and I get and, and it's, there's yeah, one of product them. of his time and separate the work from the author and all of all of those arguments have been made, but Legacy of Cthulhu as a game basically puts it front and center in the 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 book I guess the the player's guide or whatever that comes through and sure. says yes. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was a horrible, horrible, terrible, racist person, human being that we don't think was worth the time and anything on his on the planet. But he wrote all this really cool stuff, and we're going to make money off of it. And that's essentially in the book. And then the people that are you know, the the, Seems the, a little the <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And the designer has been called out on it, mm. and he's like, "Well, basically, yeah." I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna back down from it because he was a racist and and f Lovecraft. But here's this game that's based on this stuff that Lovecraft wrote. Crass, maybe uh, well, is the word that comes to mind. Uh, uh, capitalism is its purest form. I suppose Robert is saying that he'd love a suggested reading list for new Lovecraft readers. He says he loves the game Octung Cthulhu. Uh, and uh, the novel The King in Yellow. He's yeah, yeah. To... Well, that's uh, uh, Arthur Machen. Machen? No. Machen? Machen. I never know how to pronounce the name. I'm sorry. Arthur M. Uh, but uh, The King in Yellow... Uh, well, The King in Yellow was actually um, a, a big inspiration for Lovecraft. Mm. Um, because prior to Lovecraft, this was the same... The same kind of cosmic horror was being done by other authors. And The King in Yellow is a classic example. In fact, The King in Yellow has sort of been incorporated into the mythos um, by various writers who have sort of combined it into the same thing because 
Lovecraft took some some elements of that and worked in. Um, it was funny because I was telling Mindy earlier because she was asking about Lovecraft, and it's there were other authors in the t at the time that were doing that sure. sort of thing, but Lovecraft really kind of opened up horror as a genre to certain to to a certain extent wouldn't you say because yeah, I think you have it, mary it, shelley frankenstein started science fiction edgar Allan poe started the detective story mm -hmm. and then lovecraft and forward is is horror i mean well, yeah sir, there was some other stuff because i mean you, not, you, you can look well at known. you look at shelley you look at poe of course they were both actually doing horror as well i mean there's 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 no question that frankenstein is it's just it is the first science fiction novel, really, but it's also a horror novel. Right. And Poe, of course, did write horror, um, but Lovecraft did something that no. I mean, the the concept of of the the cosmic horror scale kind of thing, where the the actively uh, uh, antagonistic universe, humanity is a big is a tiny little speck, and we're going to get squished, and there's nothing we can do about it. You mm -hmm. know. Um, it, it's something that pervaded through all of his works and certainly had something to do with his own personal mindset. However you feel about Lovecraft, there's no, well, there is no question that Lovecraft's views were uh, certainly, well, at the time, they were, they were racist for the time, too, but it was a period, thing of the time. But also remember that his wife was Jewish and there is no indication that he actually treated her poorly. Mm -hmm. No matter the thing he 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 had been known to say anti-Semitic things in his life as well, but apparently dealing with a person on a one-on-one -on -one level, this is a curious thing that you see. And I'm not be clear. I'm not defending his racism in any way, shape, or form. Right. But the curious thing is, is that remember, people on an individual level often behave differently than they do with the the broad idea of a thing. He was very, when he lived in New York, he was extremely uncomfortable because he did not care for the fact that he was surrounded by immigrants and he did not care that he was surrounded by other races. It's not something he enjoyed. The place that he lived with was very homogenous. This was not a comfort thing. It showed up in some of his stories. There's no question that some of that stuff inf infuses his stories. If you do not like Lovecraft and you find yourself reacting to this, it's okay. Let's make that very clear. I'm not going to sit there and tell you you have to like Lovecraft because he was influential and he did all these things. But it's but, okay, too. But at the same time, if you like Lovecraft, that does not automatically mean that you're a racist. Exactly. I'll be very, you know, I mean, there it is, and we've talked about this before, separating the creator from the creation. Right. And it's not easy, and I get that. And I 100% I understand, and you should, too. It's okay if you can't. That's you. Yeah. Okay. If you can do it, great. If you can't, that's okay. Don't I let anyone tell you that you have to like something just because it is my thing nowadays, or dislike something just because it is. Yeah, my thing nowadays well, is not necessarily the the personal attitudes of a particular author, mm -hmm. but it's their behavior toward their audience. That's the biggest thing for me. Um, yeah, and, and and who knows? You know, ten, fifteen years from now, it'll be something else. Oh, sure. But you know, to to sit here in the modern day and judge another generation, a past generation, however far back it goes, to judge that group 
by our social mores. Well, but I also think you have, to, you have to bear in mind that the folks who were reading Lovecraft at the time, very, uh, if you were not someone who was corresponding with Lovecraft, if you were not someone who was reading Lovecraft's own diaries and information, mm. you had very little information about Lovecraft the man. You and that's reading, the point. You were reading his story in, the, in, in this particular magazine or this particular pulp book or whatever it was. And so we have the advantage, quote, disadvantage, of knowing an awful lot about the folks who create the things that we consume. And there's good things about that and bad things about that. You can actually choose now. If you, if you want, you can choose to not consume creators you don't agree with. And that you can, you can make that decision based on being informed of what that person says right. and does. And that matters to some people. But you can also, if you, want, if you don't want to know, if you don't want to know what the political views of your favorite author happen mm -hmm. to be, don't go because, to Twitter. Because they might not be what you want them to be. It's hard. It's, sometimes it's hard to avoid that now. So, like I said, you know, it can it can be tough. Now, there have been a couple uh, Lovecraft County, uh, Lovecraft Country, and there's another one. Um, have been uh, some 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 black authors have who happen to be Lovecraft fans. And recognize the fact that you know the, I I'm a, I really enjoy this guy's writings. He's a racist. How do I do this? They've written you know stories set in the you know the Lovecraftian mythos uh, that deal with this head on, yeah. and they've you know won some awards. And I think Lovecraft Country is getting an adapt. It's getting an adaptation. I think it's it's getting, yeah, it's uh, getting a TV show, which I think is great um, because. Because they are doing something, and again, you don't have to do this. this. No one says, nobody says you have to do this. But they happen to be fans who sat there and, and took this head on and said, but I can make it, I can make it mine. I can make it, you know, I can take this and I can, I can tell well, the story of, you know, my culture in this world mm. and tell a cool story. Right. And this is why, this is why these things, you know, People reacted the way they did to these things because they were well-written stories that play in this world and don't shy away from the contradictions there. It's a challenging thing sometimes. But you also go back to, you know, um, there were times, there were, and we see it, we see it because the world changes. You go back to some of the things they, you know, mini skirts in Star Trek. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, or moments where people said, you know, a woman cannot be a, a captain of a starship. Actually, that never got said, except well, by Janice Lester. By and Janice, Janice Lester, Lester was crazy. Was already crazy and paranoid. So who knows? I know what she was reacting to. But you could also go back to the pilot episode of Star Trek, where uh, Chris Pike uh, says, "I'm comfortable with having women on the bridge." It's a different time. It's a different time in how things were written and the different ideas well, of what women in the military... Yeah, but in the, cetera, context, in the context of that conversation, though, has to do with the fact that he's got this new, young, hot yeoman it's, and he's not thinking about, number one, as being a, a, a woman. He's thinking about her as being uh, a capable first officer. Right, which actually kind of speaks to it does speak, except that it also it also as, as a professional, what the young, attractive yeoman looks like uh, shouldn't matter. Captain, behave yourself. <laughs> Who do you think you are, Jim Kirk? <laughs> really, right? <laughs> but I mean, so I mean, so there's there's you can do you can do this all day. I mean, you can go back and you can look at um, you know a lot of and and again. If you are uncomfortable with Lovecraft's writings because of, of who he was as a person, 
that's okay. If you accept, if you're fine with it, that's okay too. It's a tough thing to walk. You figure it out for yourself. Don't let anybody tell you what you have to consume no. in terms of your entertainment. You don't. You make that decision. And now I say that. And speaking uh, of which, but watch, you know. Now we go to the critics, and what they're saying about the color out of space. Sure. Because that's what we do here, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if I can get my Kindle to work. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Color of Space also stars, stars Nicolas Cage. Which, if you had not known that, and this changes your perception of what this movie may be, don't be surprised. Because <laughs> people, a lot of people sat there and went, Nicolas Cage? Um, Let's see. Scenery when to we be saw, chewed. When we when we saw Nicolas Cage in a Lovecraft movie, my first reaction was, "Well, of course, <laughs> because it's Nicolas Cage, and you know he seems to well, you know, and and he Nicolas Cage. So here's the interesting thing about Nicolas Cage to me. Okay. Um, Nicholas Cage apparently likes to work. Nicholas Cage also likes to buy things that he shouldn't be buying because they're very expensive and ultimately uh, come back to haunt him in tax purposes. But um, Nicholas Cage likes to work, and he works a lot, and he says yes a lot. Yeah, and that that has a tendency to uh... blow up in his face a little bit, or not exactly help his his reputation as a fine actor. Here's a review from Forbes. Uh, David Alm, the writer of this review, liked 2018's instant cult classic Mandy. Nicolas Cage's new film, Color Out of Space, aims to dazzle, frighten, amuse, and in the end, rollick anyone willing to subject themselves to nearly two hours of cinema cinematic transmogrification. Mm. Say that ten times fast. In other words, it's not for everyone, but for lovers of old school sci-fi horror and all things Cage, it's an absolute delight. There you go. Says the movie hues surprisingly closely to the 1927 short story upon which it's based, um, which actually is pretty pretty good to hear that. Right. That this is actually, I think, the third feature-length adaptation of Color Out of Space. Um the second one was 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 that the Will Wheaton was in the second one wasn't there was Will, I think there was a Will Wheaton I um I believe there was there was another adaptation that was actually also pretty pretty uh, close but um, Cage plays Nathan Gardner a middle aged father of three who's relocated his family to his father's farm where they grow vegetables and raise very expensive alpacas which is set in modern day by the way. I am not sure alpacas have ever been deployed as hilariously or as grotesquely as they are in this movie. Which, I mean, that you know. that's enough to recommend it right there, right? <laughs> right? Jolie Richardson is in this. Yes. Uh, the kids. Which I think this is her first horror film since Event Horizon. I, 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 I think so. It could be. I haven't seen Jolie Richardson in very much lately. I think she's been doing TV. Tommy stayed. Chong. Mm -hmm. Tommy Chong is perfectly cast as an eccentric squatter on the property named Ezra who lives in a shack nestled deep in the woods. Okay, grammar, grammar police here. I'm sorry, this, this kind of thing just bugs me. 
Tommy Chong is perfectly cast as an eccentric squatter on the property named Ezra. It's missing a comma, isn't it? Well, that the structure of that sentence would indicate that the property is named, named Ezra. Ezra. Don't do that. What's your Amazon? I just, I mean, dear editors who are should be catching makes, this when you're writing. It writers. makes my teeth grind yeah. to see this kind of terrible, terrible. So, so I guess so. Forbes, Forbes, yeah. is, is Review, Reviews it. have been. I mean, they're, they've they've been a range. Yeah. Um, IGN Nicolas Cage alpacas and an alien force make for one bizarre but fun film so there's there's IGN I'm gonna I'm just gonna you just never know what to expect when Nicolas Cage leads a movie these days (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's the that's the lead uh, the lead in that story there Um, I mean if you if you saw Mandy it's actually a very interesting movie no and um, it actually plays into lets Nicolas Cage kind of play to his excesses, and a film like this does as well. And I think that you can. Um, but for those of you who aren't aware, that the premise of the film is there's a farm, a a meteor or a something falls. An alpaca. Uh, Out of there space. are there are no alpacas in the short story. No alpacas in space. Um, and uh, well, we don't. For all, there could be alpacas in space. You don't know. Um, But anyway, uh, it lands in this farm and begins to change things. Things things rarely end well in the Lovecraftian universes, but... As we will see. As we will see. But yeah, it's it's a relatively short, short story. I mean, there's not a whole lot to it, uh, except it gives you, you know, you get to watch this, this family and this farm change yeah and the reaction of the town to it um in sort of a distance the uh obviously they've expanded it here but they've also given it more of more character development and give you a chance to know the family and which is one of the things that i think is important for for horror is to care about the characters well and again it goes back to having to extrapolate mm-hmm. from the from the spine of the story the the short story essentially gives you the bones on which right. you hang everything else. And especially with dialogue, because dialogue is not an existent in these stories uh, to, to a point. I'd say maybe, what, 95 to 98% of his stories are all just narration oh, yeah. Yeah. and description. Yeah. And I spoke to I spoke to him at, and, he's, yes. and he told me... Yes, you yeah. ask me if I did this and this right, and right. that. Yeah, so it's... It, you, the challenge is to make it all up to fit what's in what... Right. Know. And you also have to bear in mind that a lot of these folks are telling these stories from a position of, I'm insane and in the asylum and I'm telling you my tale. Right. And so... I just a... survived a horrible, horrible thing that I can't really tell you what happened, but I'm going to try. You will not believe my tale, but I must tell it to yes, you nonetheless. Yeah. Um, this tale has made $356,000 worldwide so far, according to Box Office Mojo. I don't think it's in too many theaters. No, it's a... Um, the the time... I mean, if, if... If Stanley had had... If his career had not had the derailment... 
um, then then maybe it would have had a wider open. The fact that the fact that it, as I generated the interest that it has it is in part because of the controversies that Stanley's had in the past, but also because Nicolas Cage is involved, and it's a yeah. Lovecraft adaptation. A lot of Lovecraft adaptations do not come with giant budgets or giant releases. Right. Um, you look again uh, at the mouth in the mouth of madness is probably the biggest Lovecraft inspired film budget and profit wise. Um, now but, here's an article out of Hollywood reporter color out of space. Filmmaker Richard Stanley is planning a Lovecraft trilogy. Yes. Dunwich well, the, horror is the next one he wants yes. to do. Um, which I would actually like to see a really well crafted version of that film. That story. See. I think, uh, uh, there have been a couple versions um, of varying degrees of quality. Now, according to this article, here's a here. here I'm gonna uh, read this full quote. Both Stanley's color, color out of space, and ongoing comeback, and they the ongoing comeback indicates there's present tense, which means it's happening, which means he's coming back, which means. This is... I guess they feel good about his work now. He's no longer a pariah. Uh, comeback would not have been possible without the success of Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Writer-director David Gregory's detailed and unsparing yeah. 2014 documentary about the catastrophic <laughs> production of 1996's The Island of Dr. Moreau, which saw Stanley fired as director and replaced with filmmaker John Frankenheimer. Who, you know, however you feel about Frankenheimer as a director, because he's had some hit misses, what an awful position to have to be in. I mean, you know, you're sure you want the paycheck. Sure, you want your chance to, you know, make the movie. But it's like you know, get called into. He's apparently. Clean up the mess. He's apparently talking to. The comic book company Humanoids, hmm. about adapting his Island of Doctor Moreau script to oh, a comic cool. book. That'd be nice to see. I'd now, like to see Humanoids, that. for those of you who are who have been paying attention at all to the comic book industry, Humanoids H1 here in the United States mm. has Mark Wade on as a creative consultant. Uh, Mark right, Wade, yeah. of course, has his own reputation of sure eccentricity, shall we say. Um, but a pretty decent track record for bringing classic characters back to life. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, he revived the the Silver Age Flash and the Silver Age Green Lantern, two pretty successful runs in the comics. Um, and uh, you know, nothing succeeds, succeeds like success in no. the business industries. All right. So yeah. So apparently, the Dunwich Horror is next. Do we know what the third one is going to have, be? I haven't seen anything. I I could have sworn someone's said what it was but i have not found a listing that i no. um but you know i think that there's certainly um the there's something to be said for modern takes on some of these stories you look at like annihilation uh which has a very lovecraftian horror feel mm -hmm. um it's um and of course curiously you know, it's it's one movie that basically is meant to be a standalone film, which is based 
loosely on the first book right. in a trilogy, and with the, the filmmaker, noticed, there was no interest in actually making a trilogy. It was just yeah. let's make the movie. It says here, don't which horror he's working on now. Um, probably take place seven years after the events of Color, or someday in a future version of the Lovecraftian city of Arkham, which is where I'll continue to explore the concept of the old ones returning to Earth. I think these movies will climax with a battle between humanity and the old ones. I can't reveal the nature of the third movie beyond that, though. That will not be an adaptation of a Lovecraft story, then. No. Because all, that he will says, very all much... of Lovecraft's work is in the public domain, so over the next few years, anyone could go forward and make their own Call of Cthulhu, which, which they, they have. have. I'm intrigued to see what the next two to three years will bring with Jordan Peele's Lovecraft Country mm -hmm. and other upcoming projects. It seems to me that Lovecraft's time has come. So it'll be interesting to see, like like you yeah. said with Lovecraft Country, what that's going to look like. Um, and well, of course... There's, there's... It's a fertile concept to play in. And there are people who have riffed on it in ways that are interesting. Um, the, the Laundry series, Charles Strauss, British author, mm. uh, it's basically what if, what if there was a British agency that was you know they knew that the barriers and the walls of reality are coming down and and that the the nightmares are on the other side and then um basically humanity can't win but by god when the things come we're gonna fight so basically torchwood for the lovecraft kind of set. except that it's more there's a lot of humor especially in the first books it's the 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 later books the last couple um narlowathotep uh, has actually, uh, well, you know, he's here, mm. and he's now the Prime Minister of England. So Things have gotten bad. <laughs> so Torchwood, set in the Lovecraft universe, as written by Douglas Adams. Um, yeah, except they've gotten grimmer from the... Yeah. Uh, and, but the, the, the first books were very much leaning into the whole bureaucracy gets in the way of saving the world. Like it does. Like it does. Yeah. And there's also uh, the Heidegoody and... I can't remember the name of the other author... Uh, the Odd Jobs series, which is basically what if the uh, the the Lovecraftian gods are already here, they've been here, and they just haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> they haven't gotten around to any of the world, but it's coming. Yeah, and they'd like you to know. Yes, we're here. Yeah, um, we actually rule over your cities. You don't know that, and we one of these days will kill you all. And and the poor little very underfunded government agencies that their job is is to basically be the diplomatic core sure. to the evil demon gods that are going to eat your head yes until they decide to do that so everyone knows they're doomed it's just a question of when it's a question of when but someone's job is to go sit there and go. Yes, your infernal awfulness. We come to you from the British government to ask to offer our request that you please do not eat Birmingham. You know, and it's and, and they're really funny. Um, so I mean, there's there's you can play with this stuff in a lot of different ways. There's humor to be found in this. Um, there's there's um, there's a, a whole bunch of online series, um, online comic strips, My Little Cthulhu. Um, there's all kinds of fun that you can play with this. So. There's, there's, you know, it's a rich and fertile universe that even if you don't, even if you don't like the style of Lovecraft, some of the style of the writing is a problem for some people. Mm -hmm. It's very stylized. 
even if you don't like that, somebody is telling the kind of story that he basically inspired and kicked off and really just made a thing. Um, that's maybe going to be something you enjoy a lot. If if you like that kind of... Some people just aren't going to like that kind of story. Uh, and it's, some, it's, it's a universe that we've dabbled in. We have. And... It's let's see now. It's ten after nine. We've been we've been going for a while. I think it's about time. Maybe shall we sure. shall we show them? Let's show them. Okay, up. so here's what we're going to do. We're going to set this up. Uh, we are going to run a very quick break so we can set up the the set up the projector as it were. <laughs> um, those of you who are listening to this as a podcast. How shall we do this? We could. I'll tell you what. You can you you can listen to the audio, the, obviously the audio version of it, and and you sh you should get something out of it. We will go ahead and get a version of this uploaded, and I'll go ahead and put it on my Vimeo account. We can. We link to link that, or you to, to put it put it into our YouTube. We'll we'll figure we'll, out we'll how figure you it out. can we'll see it. Out. Yeah. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a break, and and then we're gonna set this up. And when we come back, we are going to present our adaptation mm -hmm. of the statement of Randolph Carter when the H2O podcast continues after this break. When it comes to Star Wars news, is it better to get it in the corporate package or from fellow fans? For all the latest news, rumor, and speculation, check us out on Sci-Fi For Me TV, Salacious Crumbs. And we're back, I guess. Are we back? We're back. Okay. Um, right. So, um, Robert, you, you asked about a... I'll vamp here for a little bit. You asked about a suggested reading list, a starting place for the Lovecraft. Uh, somebody wants to get involved with it. Um, definitely, you can find the short story collections anywhere, pretty much at this point. There's a, uh, you can go down to your Barnes & Noble or most used bookstores, and you can find probably a decent collection or... Um, there's a really nice one. The, I got the annotated Lovecraft, which is a fairly sizable tome um, that uh, I, I that I have. Um, I bought one for me. I bought one for my brother. Uh, and there's really just um, a lot of cool information in there. But if you're going to start, you want to think a, a, a short story to start with. Um, you know, certainly statement of Randolph Carter, uh, Pickman's model, the rats in the walls, the rats in the walls, the Dunwich Horror. Um, Shadow over Innsmouth, Call of Cthulhu. Of course, that's the classic one. Right. With a fine adaptation from the Lovecraft Society. Yes. Uh, yeah. Is that still is that still available for people to watch? I is believe it is still. And and um, I believe you can actually buy the DVD or video. You can buy a, a digital version from them, which has the extras, no. which is really which is really cool because they talk about how they made it. They also did. Um, Another. They've done at least one other. Didn't they do Shadow Innsmouth? No, they didn't. They didn't do Innsmouth. Um, they did. Um, oh, for heaven's sakes! Can't remember what the other one was. They did was Whispers, Whisper, Whisper in the Dark. I don't know. I can't remember which one they did. But anyway, um, uh, I didn't think it was quite as good um, as as Call of Cthulhu, but I think it's a. It certainly um, is a matter of opinion, and so I definitely encourage you to check it out. The uh, Lovecraft historians. Lovecraft, Lovecraft Historical, Historical Society, Society. Yeah. Um, has a, so they've done some really <coughs> fine adaptations, um, basically set in the time period, using the 
The Call of Cthulhu is done like a 1920s silent movie, which is really, really clever. And I really, really appreciate the, the, the work they put into it. Um, and, but yeah, uh, the, the, the Mountains of Madness is, well, it was hugely influential because without that, you wouldn't have had uh, The Thing from Another World, which means you wouldn't have had The Thing. The thing. Uh, because it is, if you are looking for like the origin story for Carpenter's The Thing, you go back to the Campbell short story, Who Goes There? And that was heavily inspired, because Campbell actually was heavily inspired by Lovecraft. Uh, and so you can find the, um, a lot of the sort of the cosmic horror stuff playing there as well. Um, that's actually one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Um. I saw an interesting adaptation of that online. Yeah. Um, it was an animated version. I thought it was quite well done. Although the style was... No, wait. It was a, it was a, it was a comic book. It was a comic book. This, the animation style was... Uh, the, the illustration style was, was very curious. I thought it was a little... It was a little stylized in a way that I was kind of like, huh... Not sure how I feel about this, but I got used to it very quickly. Yeah, but I can't, re I can't remember which uh, company. I can't remember which company uh, published it. I have to look that up. So the the genesis, the origin of this particular project, uh, Tim and I spent a number of years as part of the Independent Filmmakers Coalition here in mm -hmm. Kansas City, mm -hmm. which you're still part of. I'm you're yeah. I used there. to. I, I served on the board for a number of years. I'm no longer officially on the board. I'm an advisor to the board. And we do all sorts of different things there. It's a it's a networking uh, sure. opportunity. It's a, you know continuing education mm -hmm. or workshops, right. and you have short film contests and all these different things. And the the idea here the the forty eight hour film project that you hear about so much, the timed projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, that got started in Kansas City, right, yeah. and and it's not a forty-eight hour project here; it's a ten-hour project. Right. And we scoff at the forty-hour film festival. Yeah. Ha, ha. And ha. as as we're doing all of these different things, you know, Tim and I are getting to know each other. We're having our conversations mm -hmm. that we keep saying, "Well, we should record these." <laughs> and and Tim looked at me. We we were we were talking one night, and it came up in conversation that we hadn't actually worked on a film together. Right, yeah. You know, we have all of these ideas and we talk about these things that we like and we, you know, these concepts and stuff, but we'd never worked on a project. And so we was like, okay, well, what do we, what, what shall what we, do? we do? What should yeah. we do? And, uh, both of us had thought about doing, an adaptation of some sort because mm -hmm. I had done some radio theater stuff and it's 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 fun to go back and oh, play yeah. in those public domain really areas want, and stuff. I really want to make a shadow movie. Oh, the shadow. I really, I really, really do because I think there's some yeah, just it would cool be things you could do it there. It would be fun. It's well, so and fun. now you've got a lot of uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the some of the Barsoom stories from Edgar Rice Bur from, oh, yeah. from uh, um... Edgar Rice Burroughs Barsoom stories. Yes. Okay. Bur yeah. I don't. Okay. Creator of Tarzan. Same guy. I know. I know. I know. But um, so 
So we were talking about different things, and whose idea was it to do Randolph Carter? Was it yours? I think we well we talked about we talked about a number of ones that we would love to have done. Brats in the Walls came up, and I think the discussion was, okay, you get to the end of the story, <laughs> who's paying for this? Right, because the thing, there's right? things we just I mean, and we the, one of the concerns we have, and and if you're an independent filmmaker and you're working on a small budget as it is, or no budget, or no budget. You end up asking yourself, how can I afford to do the thing I want to do? Yeah. And this requires you to be quite clever at times. I think one of the things that you can occasionally see this in a big budget film from big studio picture where the filmmaker who made the, the, the small, scrappy, independent feature for nothing suddenly has lots and lots of money and things don't go well uh, yeah. because they're not they're not... You know they're not prepared to deal with the the realities of of making a film. And Robert you, says his screen just went black. His screen just went black. Yeah. Okay, that's weird because that happened to him. That happened to him last night during Chilling with Pineapple. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Robert, um, if you're still with us, we're still here. Um, I don't appear to have lost the stream. I yet. wonder if it may be. Oh. Mazurus says he can see us fine. Okay. Okay, Robert's back. All right, right. so, because we, we don't want anybody to miss this. No, we don't. So we were talking about a, a, a various different stories, and we, we settled in on the statement of Randolph Carter because of the, the kind of resources that we would need to have. Right. Um, you look <laughs> at something like Star Wars, where George Lucas had a Gary Kurtz saying... We can only do this much. Right. What yeah. can you do? And and like you're saying, creativity comes out of those limitations. And we and we also we also accepted that we were gonna be really, really optimistic about getting access to a grave. <laughs> we I had I had I had dug yeah. a grave. I, my my kid and I had dug a grave because you know, uh, for a film which is, you know, the bonding things you do with your children. Sure. Right. Is where you, you go into the woods and you dig a hole in the ground together to put to put a person in. Um, yeah. But because I, I did some, I did some uh, film noir musical things, and so we went and for we, so we dug a grave together. Um, so we knew that you know, worst case scenario, we could dig yeah. a hole. But yeah. I got to tell you, folks, if you've never dug a grave before, I got news. <laughs> it takes a while. It it's it's, it's work. Yeah. It's serious work. Um, and I I you see it in the movies all the time where they go out in the woods and they dig the grave. It's like no 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not like that. It's like it's like watching somebody, you know, it's like watching someone drive from one place to another. It's like, yeah, in the real world, that's a 45-minute uh, drive, and you two just had a conversation that started at one scene uh -huh. and ended in the other. That's uh -huh. not how people talk. Yeah. So we were like, certain amounts of things were like, yeah, yeah, we'll figure that out. Yes. And we so, did. <laughs> so, this, so this short story... Involves it's like like most Lovecraft, it's all first person narrative, mm -hmm. and as it, as we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is this story? Yeah, what what do we need to have in this thing? And so uh, the other conversation was what our division of labor was going right, to be because right. it was like, okay, well, who's going to do what? So we we settled because we're both writers, we're both directors. Yeah, and, and so we decided we're both going to produce. Mm -hmm. So it's a co-production between our two entities, our two banners. And I did the script and Tim directed. 
And, um, and then I came back in and, and basically I did the edits, which then we consulted on the edits, and I right. just you know so it's with the so uh, so the challenge for me doing the script was like I say extrapolating all of the dialogue because mm -hmm. now you got to figure out okay so in otherwise story, known as me going I don't have to do that <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, we didn't flip a coin it was suddenly well why don't you write the script. Um, he said yes. So, it's his own fault. So the story is Randolph Carter is telling this story to someone. Right. And from what we see in the in the narration, the logical conclusion is that he's talking to police detectives. He's right. talking to he's talking to the police. Mm -hmm. And it's okay, well, that tells us it's an interrogation scene. So now we have police officers, mm -hmm. you know, one or two, and you have Randolph Carter, and he's talking about the professor that's with him, right. and all he said. So you start to get this, you got start to get the structure of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And as we're going through this, we figure, okay, we will show what Carter is describing in flashback. Right. And pieces of what Carter is describing becomes the dialogue between Carter and the professor. Right. Carter and the professor, Carter and Carter and the and, and, and the, the police, police and the detectives. And and there were some really clever places where where Jason really found the logical what the, I mean it was a very natural this is what the police would say. Yeah. And and or or would be a logical thing for them to say at this point. And well, and some of that has to do with Carter saying, "You say that I was right, found of, <laughs> over here." Yeah, right. And some some of that's but there's other things, places in there where it's like you can really make it a, a, a feel like a sense of dialogue and and also have that sense of it being an interrogation. Yeah, uh, of character who's who's clearly saying that I know you don't believe me, but right. and so you can build that adversarial relationship in that you get with a lot of. The concept of the interrogation scene and it flows rather naturally. So I think Jason did a very clever job there. And and we somehow lucked out in casting our detectives. Uh, we got Tom Kane who mm -hmm. plays the voice of Yoda in in Clone Wars, and we and we got Jeff East who right. was young Clark Kent in the first Superman movie. And right. I don't know how we got him. I cannot remember, I remember how we, how we either. We got uh, so it, it, and, and so we, we have. Yoda and and Superman in our movie, right? And then when we were casting the film, we had some really interesting um, experiences with the casting because we had a lot of people actually show up and audition. Yeah, and there was at one point we had and talking about the the, the racism angle of, of Lovecraft, um, we actually had two black actors audition because we we were looking the the critical thing was having a older actor and a younger actor that played well off each other because you want to have Harley Warren, who's the mentor, and Carter, who's the, the, the personality. To, to, yeah. so you want to have their dynamic work really, really well. And so this is something that we were really looking at. And we had, we had a, uh, I can't remember the name of, of either actor, unfortunately, off the top of my head. Joe Concha? No, 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 no. Oh, no, oh, no, oh. Because we had a really nice turnout for yeah, auditions. Yeah, we, we had a very good turnout. And if we had to cast these two actors, uh, these two black actors together, and there was a moment where I kind of looked at them and went, and, they, and unfortunately they just didn't play well off each other particularly yeah. well. And I mean, both of them were, did fine jobs, but they just didn't have the chemistry uh, that we, you really needed. And that you know just doesn't happen sometimes. But that would have been the dynamic, because it would have worked, because it could easily have been, because it... 
the the setting of it in the setting of it in the story is realistically sort of the south ish it's it's kind of it's kind of vague there's a there's yeah. small you know but um but it, you, it, it could have easily played well with these with these two. Unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't go that way, or, or we, fortunately, we went the way we did because it worked. Yeah. But it could have been a very different thing, which would have been a very interesting dynamic because the confrontation scene between the two detectives and Carter would have taken a very different tone um, because of the time period. Because we did set it as a period piece. Yeah, it, it was it was nineteen. We set it in nineteen twenty one, twenty two, something like something, that. Yeah, or mid mid twenties, and. Um, Part of that, we lucked out because in a previous life, I worked for the ABC affiliate here. Mm -hmm. And my job there as part of the creative services department was to make TV commercials for yeah. clients to you know run their commercials on, this, on, on, this, on the network. And we had done, we had done a series of spots for a rug company. Mm -hmm. And the rug company decided that we're going to shoot these commercials at a castle yeah. here in the Kansas City area, out in Olathe. And I thought, why in the world would we be doing this? And the nature of the spots were such that it, it okay, I can make it work, let's, let's do it. Right, yeah. But we ended up shooting at this castle, and, and I thought, oh, this would, this would be perfect for something later and yeah. i had it tucked in the back of my brain and i had their contact information and so we were looking for a setting to to uh to be miskatonic university right and this was perfect for that it was it was it, it they i want to say that they brought this castle over it's, a, it's a gorgeous building oh it is it um is. but it also wore played really well because one of the things that kansas city is really great for is that and and we keep we keep seeing this with with like L A L A and New York production companies that come to town to do work here. Yeah, sit there and they end up with this like shell shocked look on their face because of a how easy it is to get around town, and b how many different kinds of locations you can get to when you have to get around town, and how easy it is to do all this stuff without getting permits here. Right. Yeah. You know, there's that. Um, but you can basically shoot. There's like six different countries you can emulate in Kansas City. Um, and all sorts of other cities in in the United States right. can be played out here. There's a there's a spot downtown that looks like it could be Boston. Oh yeah, and, know, the, there's, and there's another spot things. downtown which you you are clearly down in downtown Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, and there's other places like that where you get. In, but but period stuff is always a challenge because the the real world wants to intrude, or the the modern world, and so but conveniently, you know, Jason found the location. I'd been making films set in the 1940s. So conveniently, men's clothing, while it has changed between the 20s and 40s, had not changed a lot. So we could, we could, and uh, uh, Dustin Adair uh, worked on that. He was my our costume, uh, uh, well, costume designer and and uh, costume master for that as well. Who got us the car? Um, the car came out of, I th I want to say the car came out of one of my discussions with the people who were getting me my 1940s cars. And okay. then they gave us, right. they, they connected with us. We got a, it was a Model T. Yeah, great So we've got, a, we've got a vintage, fully restored oh, yeah. Model T in this thing. It's, uh, just, all of the pieces just came together. And we, so we found out, um, I found a 1920s um, field telephone. World War I field telephone. Right. 
um, which basically has disintegrated. I mean, this thing. Has it? Yeah, I mean, it's. It didn't. didn't it, all I mean, it. it's unfortunately the we when we got it, it was the. It had all the original chords, and um, it literally was a nineteen twenty something field telephone. And this yeah. stuff was not. I mean, the fact that it was as stable as it was uh, was kind of amazing. But it has just given. I mean, I yeah. did my best to to keep it uh, as climate controlled as possible. But well, and I had to. I've told I've told the story before about finding the the Planet of the Apes print, the uh, uh, first edition yeah. uh, thing in French, at the library sale. Well, I was I was buying books <laughs> in other languages for this film. So in the in the library in in Professor Warren's library, uh, you. Know, Carter could be looking through books that are in other languages. Right. The whole, whole Which is idea a was to do this. Uh, but and you also designed the the book, the Necronomicon. The, uh, that uh, I've been looking around to see if it's around here somewhere. I was wow. thinking it was. Uh, but. but I thought that for for something that appears for appears at critical points. I don't see it in the in the film, but does not necessarily have to be dwelled on for large periods of time. Um, or should not be because this is a this is a I think a mistake a lot of people making Lovecraft adaptations seem to want to do, which is look at our book. Yeah, they linger. Like, oh, okay, guys, don't do it. Um, but uh, Jason did a really really fine job with that. It looks and 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 didn't and made the book the the design of the book different from what we had seen before, which I think was really important. It made ours stand out, and I think it worked really well. Um, now we did. Uh, <laughs> Because we're masochists, apparently, we decided <laughs> to shoot this film in the winter because snow is production value. Sure. If you, don't have, if you don't have a big budget and you can use the weather to your advantage, do so. Yeah. Well, we, so we put, the, we put the crew together. We got our cast. We put the crew together. And there's a, there's a, a, a cemetery east of Kansas City in Independence, Missouri, that has that feel that period feel since mm -hmm. we had decided we we're going to do it in period it had to be an old cemetery right and uh, we had talked to this this particular cemetery about doing it and they're like well yeah we've had some stuff shoot here before and you know some period piece some documentary style things for their own right for their own stuff and some historical stuff because there's some there are some notable citizens that are buried in that in right, that, right. their families and so they were at least somewhat sort of kind of familiar with the process of doing a mm -hmm. production on their location. Right. So we had all of the paperwork and everything was signed and everything. And uh, we, were, we were, I remember talking to them about needing, if it's possible, if there was, if, you know, if we could shoot in a grave. Right, yeah. They're like, well, I don't know. We had our dates, but we weren't quite sure if we were going to get this or if we were going to have to do some right. trickery we were or yeah, whatever. You're considering the possibility. There's there's a way to do this with shooting above ground, and there's a way to do it shooting below ground. Yeah, and, and I we were, get a you know. I get a phone call from the director of the cemetery, and they say, um, "Okay, if you can shoot Friday." There's a freshly dug grave available, and we don't need it until Monday. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we'll shoot. So we shot this. When you, when you see this film, we are shooting 
in a freshly dug grave. You're shooting in a freshly dug grave in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. In uh, January. In January. It is... Prior to the worst blizzard we had in I don't know how many years. It is very, very cold very on this cold. set. Um, the actual temperature was four, I believe. And the wind chill was minus 19. So there was a lot of shoot, 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 jump into the tent with the heaters. Yeah. Jump out, shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, and the fantastic casting crew. They were worked very, yeah, very hard. Great. And it was... It and we was, had pizza. I made pizza in the middle of the night. Um, and I, I Oh, was... and, and no bathrooms. Oh, yeah, because you were basically... We weren't exactly locked into the cemetery, but we, but we were, were basically locked into the cemetery. Yeah. and this is out in a place... This is out in a part of the Kansas City metropolitan area where you don't really want to be wandering around at night. Right, and, and, and the there, only, are, the there only... are no convenience stores in the there's, neighborhood there's that are one. open. There's one... And it's not a very, it's, it, yeah. yeah, it was like not that close. No, it was not close. So if you did this, you basically had to make a pilgrimage. Yeah. It's okay. Everybody who's got to go to the bathroom, everybody in the car, they all go at the and same time. And I think time. we did that once. And they were like, this is such a colossal pain. It was just like either, yeah. either hold it or that tree over there. I want to say, I want to say we did, I, Three trips, probably yeah. maybe some there. So so anyway, so so yeah. So um, if if you have ever heard me make reference to Randolph Carter cold, yeah, this is what we're talking about. Nineteen below wind chill in January in a cemetery, and we had we had the fog machine. Oh, it was yeah, and we had all sorts of atmospheric stuff. It was great. We had all of the elements, and it came together so well. Wait, and and. We had made the decision early on to do this as a period piece, which also informed our decision on the effects. Right. Because if we're going to do this as a period piece set in the 20s, then you should do the effects as if you're in the 20s or 30s or, you know, the 40s, whatever. We so, thought that would just be really cool. So, so for the last shot, I, should I we'll talk about the last shot yeah. alright so um, no nobody nobody desecrated a grave Robert come on we did so, not no we did we were very respectful of, of if, the property it, and yeah at this, at this particular point it, it yeah. was a hole in the ground yeah it was an empty hole in the ground, although... And I do remember our camera operator looking up and saying, this feels so Oh, weird. yeah. You don't, you don't, you so you don't realize out. how deep one of these things really are. You, you, hear six, you hear six feet deep. Yeah. When you're standing at the bottom of one of these things... Yeah, it's it's deep. But, it's, you know, you have the ladder to get down. Sure. And all of that. And, of course, our actors have to go down in that. But, so but then there's the realization that our, our, our DP is... To get the shot that we want to get, he's like, okay, so balance is about to be a very odd thing. Yeah. And he does he does this thing. And, and, it's, and, and it's really hard to see it in the finished product, the, the physical contortion he had to make to get the shot. Oh, yeah. He's, he's basically doing the limbo with a camera on his chest. At the bottom of a grave, yeah, it, it pointing was, the camera. Up and we were like, "Are you sure things. you're okay?" And he's like, "I'll be fine." <laughs> yeah. Let's just do it. Let's do it once and <laughs> get it do done. Do it once. But I, I, yeah, it, it managed to work out pretty well. But it was, it was a, 
physically it was a bit of a rough shoot just because of the temperature yeah um but they, they we we had a really fantastic cast and crew they worked really really hard and, and great props great props i've still got the two lanterns that we used yeah. and, and um we've got the the candlestick did we use the candlestick phone in that movie i don't think we did i think i, got I that don't think we did I um remember. the um we went out and got vintage. We, we we made some decisions about backstory stuff that doesn't show up in. That's not in the story. Yeah. We looked at sort of the time and 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 who who Randolph Carter is in the Lovecraft mythos, um, and and some of the things that happened to him later in because he's a recurring character. He mm -hmm. shows up in, in three stories that Lovecraft wrote, uh, and so we basically made some decisions about who he was in terms of of his relationship to history so we actually made him a world war one veteran because he's in the story he's described as being fragile and certainly well, we wanted to give him a reason to be fragile yeah because he also does he also has moments of bravery in that story and also in the later stories so we wanted to actually give him and this is the stuff that that shows up in the story or is actually talked about in the film this is just backstory that we built for the character that seemed to make sense and so so one of the things we wanted to do was to actually when we when we Produced the one, you know, the one weapon you actually see. And we, we wanted to be a vintage, you know, vintage firearm for the right time period and some of the other. We wanted the technology to be the right technology for the time. So, um, and it was, I think, I think we overall did a pretty good job. I think so. All right. So, enough yammering. Yeah. Let us do this. Okay. So, since this is a special presentation, it gives us an excuse, <laughs> an excuse to run our special presentation animation and then we will present to you the statement of Randolph Carter. Repeat, gentlemen, your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine me, execute me. Everything that I can remember, I have told you with perfect candor. It's all rather vague, Mr. Carter. If anything remains vague, it's only because there's a dark cloud over my mind. Cloud? Yes. So what about this Henry Warren? Harley Warren. And again, I don't know what's become of him. Although I almost hope he's in peaceful oblivion. 
Isn't he one of your closest associates? Yes. For the past five years, I have been his closest friend, and I have gotten to share in his terrible researches into the unknown. Well, you were seen on the Gainesville Pike, walking towards the Cypress Swamp. This witness of yours may have seen us together, as he says, but what followed, why I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp, I must insist I know nothing save what I've told you over and over. There was nothing there at the swamp. We looked. I know nothing beyond what I saw. Vision or nightmare, I can only hope that's what it was. What about Warren? Why he didn't come out? Only his ghost can tell you. So what were your activities in the cemetery about? Must I say again, I no longer retain full comprehension of what went on. The weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me. To some extent, shared by me. Out of his vast collection of rare books on forbidden subjects, I read every one written in languages that I could understand. Most were in Arabic. But the book he carried with him was written in characters I've never seen anywhere else. Warren never would get to tell me just what was written in that fiend-inspired book. I remember how I shuddered. I had his facial expression the night before. I'm telling you, Carter, there's a reason certain corpses never decay. They rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years, and this book holds the secret as to why. I have no clear idea of our object that night. Certainly, it had to do with something written in that book. But I swear, I do not know what we expected to find. The cemetery was ancient. So ancient that I suspect Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade the site in centuries. There was a stench, as if the very stone was rotting.
I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface. But it'll be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine what I'll have to see and do, even with what you've read and what I've told you. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt any man without ironclad sensibilities can see it through and come up alive and sane. You cannot go down there alone. Heaven knows I'd be glad to have you with me. But I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. You have no idea what the thing is like. But I can help. One I... more word of argument from you, and I shall abandon this expedition forthwith. But I promise I'll keep you informed over the telephone, every move. You see, I've got enough wire to go to the center of the earth and back. All this I can remember, but I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. I kept sight of the glow of his lantern until it disappeared abruptly. Abruptly? As if he met a turn in the staircase. I was alone, bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands. Professor, Warren. God, if you could see what I'm seeing. Carter, it's monstrous, unbelievable. What, what is it? Warren, what is it? I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Oh, great God, I never dreamed of this. Dreamed of what? Warren? Warren? Everything, it's your only chance. Do as I say, don't ask me to explain. 
Around me were tombs, shadows, and darkness. Beneath me, some peril beyond the radius of human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I. I almost resented him for deserting me under such circumstances. For God's sake, Carter, put back the slab and beat it! I was only able to repeat my frantic questions. But something in the boyish slang unleashed my faculties. Warren, brace up. I'm coming down. Don't. You don't understand. It's too late. Oh, my own fault. Put back the slab and run. There's nothing else you can do now. Quick. Before it's too late. I tried not to heed him. I tried to break through the paralysis that held me. To fulfill my vow to rush to his aid. But his next whisper found me still held inert in the stark chains of horror. Curse these hellish things. Legions. Oh, oh my God. Get out. Get out. Get out. Beat it. After that, silence. I know not how many eons I sat stupefied. Over and over, I called, shouted into that phone. Then there came to me the crowning horror of it all. Warren! Warren, are you there? Warren? I do not try, gentlemen to account for the sound of the thing, nor can I venture to describe it in detail. I heard that voice as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery, amongst the crumbling stones, falling tombs, the rank vegetation, and the miasmal vapors. That voice welled up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulchre.
Ta-da! Right. So, we hope you were, if nothing else, a little entertained. Um, we that was fun. It was fun. We enjoyed it. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it in... A while. Forever, yeah. yeah. Well, since we screened it. Yeah. That, well, that one time. Because we screened yeah. it We screened it at the... Um, we screened it at uh, Terror on the Plains. <laughs> Robert says, better than the last ten years of Kevin Smith. Well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah, we screened it at uh, Terror on the Plains, uh -huh. which is uh, a horror film festival here in Kansas City. Uh, we've screened it at the Kansas International Film Festival. We've screened it at the Kansas City Fringe Festival. Yes. Um, and so it's 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 was been Fringe a, the first place where we screened it? Um, I believe Fringe was the first place we screened it. Okay. And then the last place was at Terror in the Plains, and that was a black and white version, an all black and white version, which I cannot find now. And I suspect I've got a, I've got a hard drive that is does not like to talk to my computer right now. Sure. Um, and I suspect it's on there because it is a uh, I, I was we were talking about doing an all black and white version, and, and so I did a cut of it that, that way, and then happened to screen it there. I had a couple of people come up and say like they really liked it. They'd seen it before in yeah. the color version. Um, Funny story, uh, talking about the different versions, the color, the black and white, mm -hmm. and the sepia, and all that. Uh, you'll notice the flicker and the flashbacks. Um, there's a reason for that, <laughs> and it it is a creative decision born of a practical issue. Yeah, we had in the cemetery, we had a generator that was not putting out steady electricity. And so one of the lights that we had shooting off into the environment mm -hmm. was pulsating and flickering and not giving us steady light. So we're like, okay, well, how do we cover this up? Yeah. And we... <clears throat> And, and the idea of doing it as old newsreel well, kind was, of was born of necessity. There was a there was a there was a much easier decision to make, which is we chopped that particular scene of, of Carter sitting on the tombstone right. down to the amount of space we had in between blatant flickers. Yeah, and we actually talked about that. Except we wanted to see him sitting there by himself and have this isolated thing and let. Because one of the things that 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 we had talked about and we talk about from time to time is. Um, there's something to be said for stillness and tension in horror and, and certainly stillness in any kind of storytelling where you just let something breathe, but you let a moment stretch. Yeah, and nowadays everything is just cut, 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 cut. And there's cut, benefits cut. to that. Fast. I mean, there's, there's sometimes you can end up with some really cool stuff when you, when you edit that way, but there's something really powerful we think about sometimes just letting us shot just sit there yeah. and so we we're like oh i don't want to lose this shot I know, it was something. and and so we we went with that and i think that to some degree it works i think there's some there's some things that you know if we, we had time to go back and we ran into this we we and you run into this a lot when you are an independent filmmaker and you're not necessarily working on a budget that you could just like spend throw money at things whereas you have this many days and you have this much time at this location and yeah. it's what you've got and so you can't when you get a flickering generator, you got a generator that's not, you know. Um, yeah, it's not like we could go back. Right. I mean, I I believe we actually got it replaced for the next night. Yeah, we did. Um, but I mean, and you can't. You know, you have a choice. You can either just like lose all that first night's footage, um, and then not have it because yeah. you don't have time to shoot it. 
Well, and and the other thing too is, you know, it was it actually works to differentiate between the present day with the interrogation and all of the stuff that happened prior, Mm -hmm. because he's telling the story and we're relating it as he's telling it. So it it makes sense visually to separate the two time periods some way and so this actually kind of solved a, a, a couple of different problems you know not just the practical the practical problem of the of the light flickering but also the time jump how are we going right. to transition back and forth and so you notice the color is different um besides the old film flicker it's desaturated right. it's 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 more of a newsreel style and that was that was a, a a choice that I think really kind of serves the film better than we expected it to. Yeah, and there's there's always an interesting thing. Lovecraft had a tendency to end his short stories on an exclamation point. Yeah, um, and usually with um, modern writer would sit there and go, "But I have to write what happened next." Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it wasn't the way it wasn't his writing style, and it was it was certainly something that worked really well for the pulps, where where he was selling his stories. Um, so you come to this bit where you know the final line of the short story is "You fool, Warren is dead." That's the end of the story. There's yeah. nothing more. There is no more words on the page, and and it was that conscious decision that that's the end of the film. That's yeah. where things stop. Um, and um, if and you, then you have to figure out the visual for that. Yeah. So Jason goes, <laughs> so I had this idea. And I'm like, yeah, what's that? And he goes, how do you feel about tentacles? And I was like, well, you know, it's Lovecraft to Cthulhu. Lovecraft, and that's what got me thinking about it. And I thought, you know, there's, you have to explain the scratches on his face. Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how, how does he get to that point physically? Because, because the story literally, I mean, you, we, we aren't cutting anything out of the story here. There is, there is no real explanation of what happens in the story to Carter right. from the moment that he hears that voice till he is found. Yeah, and, and the subtext that as, as you read the story and what we played up to with this particular thing with the interrogation scene is the cops think... Carter did something to Harley. Right. And, and, and the, that's that's our starting point is Warren is dead and you came out of the grave. You know, two of you went in, only one of you came out. Right. So you're the only one who knows what's going on and we think maybe something hinky here and you might have done something. And so so that's that was that was the emotional state where we put everybody at the beginning of this mm-hmm. was Carter's got to talk his way out of this, and he's got to do it and explain it in a way that doesn't make him sound like a lunatic. Except he lives in the Lovecraftian universe, which means he's a he's, he sounds like a lunatic. Yeah. Now, if you've, like I said, he's this is the first of his stories, and he will appear. Uh, Lovecraft kind of used Carter as a surrogate. Mm. He was his own author surrogate, um, but his appearances in the later Lovecraftian stories are much more with the Dreamlands tales, which are a completely different tone. Than the, they're right. connected. It's a different kind of Randolph Carter there. Right, and it's also an older Randolph Carter. No. Um, and so clearly, he did not go to prison for a long time. <laughs> if, you, if you go with it, what, what little continuity there is inside the Lovecraftian, Lovecraft's own stories, clearly Carter 
you might have spent a time in in a, you know a sanitarium. Yeah, but it was it was fun when we're when we're doing this and, and assembling all of these pieces and parts. When I came up with the idea for the tentacles, it was okay. Well, we we've gone down into the grave. The mm-hmm. monsters are in the grave. Right. What if Carter escaped the monsters? At some point, he had to have an encounter with them. What would that look like? What would that be like? Um, Thomas checking in. Yes, we're still here. We just screened our movie. You might have missed it, so y'all have to watch in replay. Um, but the the idea that the monster attacks Carter in some way mm-hmm. got me thinking, okay, what would that look like? And what would that look like in a film made in the 1940s, right. set in the 1920s? You know, without any CG or modern effects or anything like that. It would be a practical, it had to be right. a practical effect. So d- downtown in the in the city market, the river market area, there is uh, there's a, a Vietnamese contingent. Mm-hmm. And there's a very, very well-stocked um, fish market mm-hmm. down yeah. there. And so I bought a couple of packages of squid, mm-hmm. calamari, and and we go to the office, and we lay a green green fabric right. on the floor. Basically, a green, a big green screen, big but also a drop cloth on the floor for the slimy tentacles. And we take the tentacles <laughs> out and we hung them from wire coat hangers. And put the camera pointing. It was an O-ring. Down. It was like a. It was like yeah, a big O-ring. O-ring. And and we're hanging we're hanging the tentacles down to the ground, mm-hmm. and the camera lens is in the ring, so the tentacles from the point of view the tentacles are wrapped around the camera. Right. And just kind of shake it a little bit so the tentacles are actually doing some stuff. Now there's footage of shaking it a little too hard (laughs) and like tentacles going and we all stopped there and went, oh that's just not right. (laughs) It just, I mean you know, attached to an octopus, to a squid to to one of these amazing you know, just beautiful creatures in the ocean as they move around is really cool. As a disembodied tentacle, not they so just no. It's just no, it's very it's, creepy. You sit there going, eh. and like, oh, okay. Let's uh, don't shake it quite so much yeah, this right. time. <laughs> you know, get everything reattached and do put not it back shake, on there. Do not do it shake again. the severed tentacles that hard. And the idea now being that as the camera shoots forward up out of the grave, the tentacles are reaching up. Now, that is that shot, by the way, where we're talking about where we have our, our uh, Mark Yazel, uh, who's the DP on that, is lying at the bottom of the grave. Actually, that shot's a reverse, because yeah. he's, yeah, he's backwards. leaning backwards into the bottom of the grave, so you can get the full depth of the six feet. And yeah. it's because it's, it's a shot that, that only works to a certain degree on camera. Well, it doesn't look quite the same, except when you're lying at the bottom of a grave going, okay, I could only bend. I could only bend. I'm gonna bend a little bit farther. Yeah, a little bit farther. Okay, this is as far as I go. Yeah, this is as far as I go. And then, of course, with the reverse. And then, what we do is, uh, uh, was it Dave that did the the yeah. extensions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like in the old days, you have the mat, the mat painting. Mm-hmm. Basically, we took the, the the shot, the actual physical footage, the shot, 
and surrounded it with an, an extension uh, to make the grave deeper. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the beginning, the early early part of right. the film, and then in the in the end when it comes forward. Now that's an unfinished shot. To a certain extent, I mean the tentacles are there and it's there, but looking at it now, I'm seeing I'm like, oh, we didn't finish that shot. And there's a story there because Dave Dave was working on the effects on this when he uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer. Right. And uh, he passed away. How long ago has it been now? Passed away last year. Last year, yeah, and so now we're in this kind of a limbo state where we've we have got, we've we, got a couple of friends of ours who do who do really really fantastic CGI work um, on the professional level. In fact, uh, uh, Paradox City, uh, I was production uh, production designer on that, um, and uh, Jim McCullough does fantastic work. But he's a busy guy, yeah. And so getting in and and the things we want him to do are are you know the kind of stuff that. You know, well, essentially he'd be doing us a doing a big a, favor, a big favor. Yeah. Uh, and which is which is great. He he's certainly interested in doing it, but it, it comes down to a matter of just timing. Time, yeah. Well, and the other thing too is we don't want it to look too overcooked, right? You know, a two CG because there's that there's there's visual giveaways on that. We don't want it. We want it to look like it was done in period and you know like. James Whale did the movie or something, you know, so yeah. that, that that time period. Because I mean, and, and there's a certain amount. Um, I did a music video several years ago. We tempt us. We we do the, the the driving shots are literally the way that we we shot them against a green screen, so we could put in the clearly not real driving backgrounds because mm. that's what you know when you're watching a Bogart well, movie. Well, and we shot the background plates. Yeah. Uh, did, did I drive and you shot it, or you you drove and I shot it? Um, I can't remember. I think I drove and you shot. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we composited that with the driving, the interior shots, which we shot inside a we shot inside a garage against a green screen, and then we had the other shots um, where Dernberger and I went out and we mm. got the the long distance car shots. Right. Uh, or the, the some of the external stuff there, um, and so I mean there was that whole was a big process, but it was again designed so that it looked like, you know, the way that they would do it then, which is you'd have the car sitting inside a, inside a warehouse, and they'd be projecting the street scene on a screen behind the car, and the fun part is is that sometimes they wouldn't get the lineup right, yeah, and you'd sit there and go. That car is driving at a very peculiar angle. <laughs> Not in the right lane. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. But it was a fun project. And, yeah. and one of these days, we'll finish it. Well, we also talked about, you know, we, we, we had thoughts about doing more, obviously. And one of the ones that we talked about doing was uh, Pickman's model. Pickman's model. And uh, because that's another classic of Lovecraft where um, another, another, as often is the want another character telling uh, someone else about their experience with with a bit of a nightmare um, and but it's it's a situation where you it is another one that lends itself a little better to a conversation uh, and actually somebody telling someone okay this is what happened to me mm. this is why I don't talk to that person this is why I don't I'm not involved with that that aspect of society now and um, if we if we were to ever do it uh, we know that we have a, we have some effects people I have a 
Uh, well, and the funny part is when we were talking about it initially, when we first talked about it, we we actually had the idea that Joe Concha could do a cameo right, yeah. as Carter. Just you know, they you know walk past each other right. and yeah. acknowledge each other. He doesn't live in Kansas City anymore. I mean, he might come back and, and do right. it for us. But we had a, a Tab Trammell uh, was one of the great makeup pe- makeup and effects people here in town, um, and she builds things. Mm. Um, and uh, we have some other friends who build who build things. And and I there's this m- moment I, I've the, got the visual in my head about how the the final reveal of the 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 well the punchline uh, the punchline. Uh, Comedy and horror. Comedy and horror. Uh, how the the big reveal of the of the story is, um, you know, I, I can see that shot in my head, and it requires, well, not the full creature, but two very distinct portions of the creature yeah. that I just and and uh, at various points when we've talked about it, you know, the people that we know in town are really really good with those effects. We're just yeah. like, yeah, yeah, we'd love to do it. Yes. Robert in the chat says, just watched the 1936 Flash Gordon serial that oh, yeah. included shots of iguanas and aquariums as giant monsters. Right, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, other, uh, the other time, uh, the other monster movie stuff that they do with that, besides the, the giant iguanas and lizards, are the spiders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, know, you know, like Kingdom of the Spiders or whatever, where you have, you know, you have the camera down low... And the spiders are all in there, and then you composite the people. Sure. Land of the Lost did this all the time, where mm-hmm. the people are in the green screen, and everything else is a model. Everything else is is fake, not there. And it's that kind of, of process that we were using, uh, to a certain extent, to, to emulate that style, and yeah. I think I think that's one of the things that we had talked about when we were trying to figure out who was going to direct this, was when we decided to do it. Period. You're the big film noir guy, yeah. so that sensibility you bring that sensibility to it as well. So now, because it's kind of a crime thriller ish. Yeah, and and, and there's so certainly there's that. Yeah, there's certainly. Um, If we if we really wanted to get into, uh, in fact, no one's as far as I know, no one's done this. Be interested to see somebody take a shot at this. I mean, if we really we we cheated a little bit by pulling it by doing some of the '40s kind of of uh, uh, pacing, uh-huh. and, and and I'm perfectly fine with that. If we like really leaned into the 1920s aesthetic, we could have gone German expressionism, captured Dr. Caligari. <laughs> And really, just because I mean, in many ways, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a horror film. Um, but do some Eisenstein. It's gonna been so much fun. It'd be a really, really different movie. <laughs> oh yeah, it would have been so different. Yes. But uh, at the same time, it would have been really kind of cool to do the. Uh, I'd love to see somebody actually push the the German expressionism kind of stuff, the stuff that you were getting with with. Um, or Fellini, eight and a half. So see now you're looking at 1960s Lovecraft, oh. and that could be really kind of cool. 1970s Psychedelic. Well, we Dunwich Horror. One of the versions with Dunwich of Dunwich Horror was very much a 1970s, 1960s psychedelic drug trippy, I've, and it doesn't quite work for that reason. That's one of the reasons it, it comes across a little too. Eight and a half. Uh, we I, I watched that in my film history class mm-hmm. at University of North Texas. Oh, so many moons ago. 
And I remember sitting there and about maybe a third of the way through is when I decided that I couldn't understand why this was such a great film. Why everybody just loses their mind over just how fantastic this film is. Like, this film makes no sense at all. This guy's going through an existential meltdown. He's losing his mind. I get that. But this film makes no sense at all. Uh, why are we watching this again? Oh, excuse me. It reminded me when, when we were in high school and I'm reading Moby Dick. I'm like, why are we? Why? I, okay, I get it. It's a classic. Why? It's boring. Because it changed the I way know, we look I at the, a thing. That's so much of this stuff becomes the way it changes the way we look at a thing. Right. And I think that there's uh, something to be said for that. But how well that ages, mm -hmm. Don Quixote is an amazing novel. However, uh, and it's an important story, and, and it's been, we, 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 we retell that story all the time. People are constantly mm -hmm. finding ways to retell that story. Well. Uh, but it's got it the same kind um, of thing. I mean, it's... The Canterbury Tales. Sure. It's another, another thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, they, keep they keep threatening, promising, threatening, promising, threatening. The Hyperion Cantos. Uh, Dan Simmons, of course, now that we got the, the... I was kind of hoping that the first season of, um, you know, getting his... his uh, the Terror adapted mm. to, you know, the AMC doing that. I was like, oh, ooh, ooh, maybe we're finally going to get Hyperion because it's a great epic science fiction story. Um, that's basically the Canterbury Tales in space. And... Or a, a riff on the Canterbury Tales in sure. space. And a little bit of The Wizard of Oz. And a little bit of your favorite nightmare, because that's what you do exactly. And and it's 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 very much aware that he he shows his work. I mm -hmm. mean, he's not like you know, but um, we're yeah we're still retelling those stories. However, some of them. Eh. Uh, Robert says I'm working through Fritz Lang's silent movies. Oh, cool. Um, there is a, a spy. He's trying to tell complicated spy stories. There is a there is a, a a movie. It's not Fritz Lang. It's Orson Welles. Third Man. No, the Third Man. Um, highly recommend that movie. Um, uh, if you it's can, not genre. No, no. Well, it is. It, well, it is genre. It's a different genre. It's a well. Yeah. It's not. It's not science fiction. No. Um, if you if you can see the extended, we just the extended cut just screened in Kansas City of Metropolis. Ah. And yes. uh, 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 Macy, who does uh, the the Tartar sauce. Tartar sauce with me. And the guys from Traveling the Vortex uh, just went and saw it. Um, and uh, I have yet to see that movie. It's, you've never seen Metropolis? I've never seen Metropolis. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, that's It's the, a and, hugely and, and influential my, science fiction film. The times where it was screening, I was not in a position where I was able to go. You know, so, schedule, work, yeah, if, whatever. It, it's so. one of those things where it's if you can see it on the big screen... Yeah. And if you can see it on the big screen with live musicians playing it, playing the the soundtrack, it's really amazing. Um, I've seen, I've had one of those experiences. Yeah. I've seen it on the big screen. I have not had it with a live, uh, a live musicians. Um, but it's one of those films that often was performed that way when you actually saw it in the theater back in the day. Yeah. Uh, the extended cut is out, um, which restores like an hour of footage. 
Something like that. Yeah, um, it was lost or in somebody. Yeah, it was in somebody. Kind of, somebody dug up this film canister. And, what is this? <laughs> and it, and it is unfortunately one of those things where you can definitely see the difference between the two. The two, but they actually have the the original intended hmm. uh, film be restored. Or it's kind of like rubbing. finding a lost episode of Doctor Who or something. Yeah, it's just like you're like. Okay. Treasure. It's a little Treasure. out of focus. I don't care. Yeah, right. The color, the color doesn't match. Who cares? They you get know? it as close as they can. But oh yeah, yeah and it's and, but it yeah, is. it was. It's really quite impressive. And, and if you have the chance to see those on the big screen, then take it because your TV might be plenty big. Yeah, but I got to see Casablanca on the big screen for the 50th anniversary, and that's just not, it's, nothing can't compares. It. Can't beat it. Well, <laughs> and we saw 2001 on the screen on mm-hmm. on the big screen. Uh, I took my son to go see it, and he was fairly impressed. After not being impressed watching it at home, it was kind of boring. But the the certain films have to be they seen play, big. They, yeah, they 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 definitely have the, the impact. The impact that you can you can tell that it's a great film, but. Mm-hmm. When you see it big, it's like well, it's like we were talking about this last Sunday, Saturday. You know, going you know, uh, going to see the the Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you if you sit at home and watch it on your TV, on your you know, put in the DVD and watch it, you're gonna sit there and go, "What is this?" <laughs> yeah. But then you go see it in the theater with a live crowd. And you're like, "Oh, it's fun. It's yeah. meant to be. A, it's meant to be a. To, to, you're meant to be playing." Um, Hello, Matt Wayne. So. I, are you just now getting here? <laughs> It's the end of the show. Hello, we must be going. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's almost at Welcome, though. Yeah, no. so. All right. So those of you who are still here, um, no, that's okay. We're not, we're not going to hold it against you. We're glad that you're here. Yes. And, uh, and showing up. And, and, but you missed our screening. You missed our movie. So you have to go back and watch in the replay. Uh, so there it is. The the statement of Randolph Carter. Yeah. Our our foray into uh, the Lovecraftian universe, and um, if you guys enjoyed that, we've got other films. If you want to see them, we can show them to you too. But uh, yeah, I suppose so. Because I'm thinking about uh, a marathon live stream mm. coming up at some point, but. Um, not, screen, not ready to talk about could that. Could screen uh, uh, nine and a half years. <laughs> that's, that's not that's, that's not science fiction, fantasy, or horror. It's well, it's about a, it's about a, a marriage that's coming apart, and then it gets put back together. You that's could not, argue that's, that's science, science fantasy. It's fantasy. <laughs> you and I have uh, both been divorced. I know, but that's. It is a comedy, that's though. That's a stretch. It is a comedy, though, and if and, it had been set on another planet. That's true. I can I can put a new title card <laughs> <laughs> on the planet Rylos. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, you're not associated with Just Some Guy YouTuber. No, that is a that is a completely different fellow. No, Just Some Guy Just Some Guy Productions um, is um, honestly it was a joke, and it's it actually stuck. It's somebody asked me what you know. God, I What's the name of your company? Yeah, and I was just like, because uh, I couldn't, you know, it was like, uh, I'm just some guy, so, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, no connection whatsoever. I'm pretty sure I predated it, them because I, yeah, Just Some Guy Productions is, is, has been in existence um, for what it's worth since 2006. Which I thought was kind of funny because when I found his YouTube channel, you know, Just Some Guy, I thought, oh, well, this is kind of fun because... It's not Tim, and it's completely different subject matter. Um, but he's very he he's he's a smart he's a smart kid. He's uh, he's he's based out of Chicago, um, 
so uh, has some some insights uh, that I find interesting uh, on some stuff. So, uh, but yeah, it's a completely different thing. And no, and no production. My company, Devonshire Jamestown, is named for my two boys. So that's where that that came from. Not that you asked, but but there we go. There we go. It's, it's, we it's good we to volunteer know. information that's here right. too. All right, so that's going to do it for us tonight. We want to thank everybody for being here. Hope you enjoyed yeah, the we movie. Hope you enjoyed it. A little bit different mm-hmm. uh, thing because you know we've been fairly good about figuring out what we're going to talk about ahead of time. Right. To this this week, not so much. This week was like, what are we going to talk about? And so we this because with Color Out of Space coming uh, coming to theaters this past weekend, it kind of timed out pretty well. Yeah. So uh, it was a good uh, a good opportunity for us. So thank you very much, yeah, folks, for uh, for joining us tonight. I'm going to get up and go uh, over to the buttons because uh, we're That's... past pumpkin hour. Yeah. And so we've lost our engineer. So I'm going to go over here and push buttons. You can say goodnight to everyone. Good night, folks. Thanks very much for watching. We really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the film. Um, you know, we had a good time making it, and hopefully, we... Jason's breaking things over there. I'm gonna um, destroy the studio. <laughs> uh. It's like the rock star has to break the guitar. Don't do it, Jason. <laughs> it's not worth it. Dang. All right, thanks, folks. We really appreciate you guys watching it. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.